You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 325, and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. This week, I'm going to be rebroadcasting a great episode I guessed it on for the Ruby Blend. In this episode, we discuss the steps I was taking to open source my Google Pay for Passage gem and how important documentation is. A big thank you to RubyBlend for having me. Speaking of, my Google Pay gem is now published and the gem and the accompanying demonstration app is now linked in the show notes. If you're excited about the Google Pay gem, please give the gem a star. If you're extremely enthused, please give the gem a try and critique me on the documentation and implementation. No observation is too small. I'm looking forward to branching out to other pass types and into payments. Lastly, I want to thank Raygun for sponsoring the show today. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Raygun is thrilled to launch the next chapter in their ongoing support for application performance monitoring, Ruby support for Raygun APM. Don't wait for users to report problems. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. They have end-to-end monitoring with features like detailed trace transactions, dashboards, user experience monitoring, and more. Raygun APM offers a seamless integration with the Roku platform via BuildPack, so get all the benefits of APM for your Rails application. To start your free 14-day trial, go check it out by visiting raygun.com rg ruby apm today. Link will be in the show notes. Now on to the Ruby blend. Code Fun Podcast Network. Hey, Ron. How's it going? Pretty good. Hey, Nate. How you doing? I'm good. I'm uh, busy and stressed, but I'm excited for today's show. How are you doing, Andrew? I am busy and stressed, but I am also ready for today's show. Um, This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend. So without further ado, welcome to the Ruby Blend. And today on our show, we have Brittany Martin, who's going to be joining us. Brittany is the lead web developer for the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust, where she is part of a team that develops the nonprofit's ticketing and festival web applications. She is also the host of the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network. Under her alter ego, Norma Skates, Brittany plays and referees roller derby for the Little Steel Derby Girls. Welcome to the show. It is my pleasure to be here. Hi, all. Hello. Yeah, I've been I've been excited about this one because I I love talking to you. You are one of my favorite people in the community to talk to. That means um, so much to me, Andrew, because I feel that way about you. You feel so well connected, all three of you actually. And I am always excited when I see you pop up on a, another podcast. I think you know, spinning up Ruby Blend, and I love remote Ruby so. The more Ruby content out there, the better. Yeah, definitely. And we may have to get you on remote Ruby because I think Jason and Chris are a little jealous. <laughs> so we might have to share. But I think we wanted to talk a little bit about gem wrappers today. You want to tell us what you're working on? Absolutely. So at the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust, the way that it works, it's a multi-tenant Ruby on Rails application that is on Rails 6. And I'm quite proud of that because I am the only Ruby developer at the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust. And 
I maintain four different Rails applications that are around ticketing or festival management and whatnot. Our biggest arts festival just moved online. So that was a big feat. But right before COVID hit, we were working on mobile ticketing. So the idea that a patron could come to the theater and instead of having to print out their ticket or wait for the, you know, mail craziness, they could actually bring their phone and be able to scan in. And so I had to do it both for Apple and Google, which I thought was going to be a pretty similar experience. And it turns out it was completely different. And I was very lucky in the sense that Passbook, the gem, is out there for Apple. So that implementation wasn't too difficult. But there was literally nothing out there for Google Pay. The API documentation was pretty broken and it was hard to follow. And so I ended up writing the implementation into the application itself. But I've been looking for an excuse to write an open source library. You know, I am so lucky to have so many people put out so many great libraries like yourselves. And so I figured this could be my opportunity to contribute back to the community. And so I've actually been spending some time in quarantine extracting that code into a gem and kind of strategizing how I want to put it out there. So I'd love to seek some counsel from y'all about the best ways to do that. I'd say you're, you're already on, you're you're off on the right foot here. And that is building something functional into your app and then working to extract it and work it backwards that way rather than trying to divine what what you may need in this library going forward. So you're already off on the right path here. That's great. A big thing for me has been just documentation. The issue is it's not like a plug and play gem. So take it, for example, HTTP party. We've all used it probably, and it's pretty easy to implement into an application, test it, and verify that it works. The problem with my Google PageM is that it requires a lot of background structure around it in order to get it working. You need to apply for a certificate. You need to apply that certificate into your code base. And so I guess my question for you all is... Would it make sense to create like an almost fake Rails application that I ship along with it or ship beside it that shows a user how to use it? Like, how would you approach that? I have done both. I think the only main consideration is that you, in your gem spec, you make sure that that folder is not required. And by default, I think gem specs by default, only require files in lib, but you would just want to make sure about that because you wouldn't want to ship, you know, the gem and an entire Rails app when someone installs the gem. Yeah, I saw a really great article. Uh, Pieter wrote an amazing article about writing the correct gems back. And so his article was really helpful in helping me put that together because there have been people who have shipped their tests as part of that gem bundle and then their, their bundle is just impossible to download. Yeah, he's got some great content. And I also would recommend, I read his gems like all the time. Whenever I'm writing a gem, I'll go through and read his gems. And I find that to be pretty helpful to at least get you in the... Because in my mind, and this may or may not be true, but when I think of a gem maintainer, like someone who's out there writing gems, writing content around writing gems, he's the first person that comes to my mind. So I usually go read his code the other person I read a lot of code from is, I know his screen name, it's Palkin. It's Vladimir. Oh, yes. I'm going to have him on Evil the show Martians. pretty soon. Yeah. I actually have him scheduled next month to come on to the 5x5 Rugo and Rails podcast. Yeah, he's great. 
Keen, I know he has a lot of opinions around Rails engines, which I do a lot of Rails engine work. So I have a lot of compassion for people who do that. Yeah, he's got some great gems too. I I learn best by reading other people's code. So I find people like Vladimir and Piotr and I just scour their code. Well, you raise a really good point because in this case, when I was implementing the Google Pay API, this is for event ticketing, which is normally a proprietary functionality within an organization. That's something that you kind of keep close to the vest. I think one thing that made it really difficult for me in order to implement it is that I couldn't do my common thing, which was going onto GitHub and reading other people's code. I was only able to find two other organizations. They weren't even in Ruby, which is fine, but it made it even more difficult. And so it just seemed even more needed that I needed to put some sort of library out there. Yeah, I I think that's awesome. Like whenever anyone has like that mindset of like, oh, I did this really complicated thing. No one else is talking about it. I should share it. That's just, that's always awesome. So I have another question for you all because I feel that people are very opinionated about this. So obviously I've been writing specs along with building this gem and I've been recording a lot of VCR cassette tapes against, you know, my fake certificate that I generated from Google. So the question is, do you ship your VCR cassette tapes with your code? Do you find it useful or do you think that VCR cassette tapes should be ephemeral? The company that I work for, we use VCR pretty extensively and we, we commit the, the tapes. And honestly, I find it extremely helpful. I, I joined around the end of February, so fairly recently. And getting up to speed and having my tests, you know, my specs pass was a breeze just because there was that extra. I didn't have to worry about, you know, getting all of these credentials and then, oh, we forgot to give you that one. We forgot, you know, and I can't really think of a great reason to not do it. I mean, I guess if there's, if you're not using test credentials, then I can see why you wouldn't want to record you know, the requests and the responses. But other than that, I don't, I don't see a good reason why not. I actually sadly can come up with a really good reason why you wouldn't. And I've actually done a conference talk around this. So the main API that I use at work, and I won't name them by name, but uh, it's a pretty common API used in the arts community. They unfortunately constantly break their API. And so what ends up happening is, let's say I record a cassette tape in February. And then I run the same cassette tape, assuming that the API is going to give me the correct response back in March. It will pass. But little did I know they changed the API and that spec should have failed. And so I've had many long drawn out arguments about whether or not it's my responsibility as a code maintainer. Should I be testing my APIs or is that really on them? And I think in this case... Unfortunately, it's on me because when an API falls over and your website, you know, suffers from it, unfortunately, your user is going to point to you and not that API. And so I agree with you. I, in most cases, I would like to keep my VCR cassette tapes as long as they're relevant, but I've gotten into the habit lately of erasing them maybe at least once a month just to make sure that they're still recording the correct response back. I would second that experience as well. I, I, I wrote a pretty large API back in the day that wrapped several others for hotel bookings, basically all the major services. And the same would happen. The version number on the API would not change and all of a sudden it would break. So we, what we ended up doing 
is we wrote a consumer around our wrapper across all of those services, and we would run it essentially in CI, and we would report bugs back to them where they had breaking API changes constantly. Our vendor recently had a release come out that was only bugs that that my organization had filed. And we shouldn't be proud of that, but we were kind of proud of it. But it was also one of those situations where should they have a bug bounty program at that point? Because now we're doing your QA, which is not a great feeling. But you're doing it for free. So... (laughs) Why would we pay when we can get it for free? Exactly. (laughs) I actually have a really good solution for you. So when you said ship the VCR, I would commit the VCR. I wouldn't ship it to the like end user, but I think that's what you meant. So, but what you can do is you can use, I mean, a variety of tools, but I'm going to use GitHub Actions since it's the easiest to kind of reason about, I think right now. You can run a scheduled job that will kick off like a CI run and you can have it delete your VCRs and you can store secrets in your repo now, like in GitHub under your settings. I think if you go to your repo settings and then on the left tab or the left tab menu, you should see secrets. So you can add in your own secrets there. So what I would do is have a scheduled job run that runs your specs, but it blows away all your VCRs and it uses those and you can put your API keys inside the environment just like you would expect them to be. So that way you could probably figure it out or you would at least have something. And if it fails, you could have it send you a message or something. I think that would, that would be my thing. That would be what I would do. I have done that, I think, in the past. Well, that sounds like a solid solution. I almost asked you why you wouldn't use encrypted credentials, but I'm not in a Rails application. <laughs> It's so funny when you work in Rails day in and day out, when you actually write plain Ruby in a gem, how you forget the certain things that you're used to having just right at your fingertips. I reached out for an active support date formatter thing the other day while I was working on the wrapper. And I'm like, oh, wait, don't have that. So we are very lucky when we are writing Rails of all the extra tools that we have. Almost seems like too many, but we are lucky. You can always bring in active support and then have everybody yell at you. Yes, it occurred to me. I think at this point, I should just add Nokogiri and Sassy into the bundle just to really have people yell at me. <laughs> yeah, that's what I would do. And if you want help setting that up or doing that, I'm happy to send you a PR or talk through that offline. But I think that's what I would do. Awesome. Can you run those actions like on a schedule? I mean, I, yeah. As opposed to just when uh, commit a trigger or no. some event happens around uh, committing? You can run them on like a, on a cron. Oh, that would be perfect. Because then, then what you could do is you could just have it automatically blow away your, your VCR tapes and then recommit them. I love that idea. No, that, that sounds great. I've been looking for a reason to use GitHub Actions, and I think you just gave me one. So I'd love to bring up to the whole idea. So I'm in the past life. I was in marketing. I have a bachelor's in marketing and found my way into development through a code boot camp. So I kind of love the whole topic around marketing for developers. I find it interesting. So how do you all market the open source repositories that you do? Because, I mean, you you all get a lot of traction for what you do. So I'm curious, when you have a new project that you're excited about, what kind of steps do you take? Go ahead, Nate. You've got experience. Yeah, I'm, I'm not as methodical about that as I should be. With the popular repos that I do have, some of them just got like, 
so for one, it's not even a Rails project. It's a, it's a Python project that is, sets up uh, StatsD and uh, Graphite and things like that. I, I did that years ago. And I just, uh, for that particular one, I really wasn't anticipating any big traction or, or really you know, getting a lot of benefit. I just wanted to raise some awareness and, and share it with the, the, with the world. And uh, for that, I just focused on writing a good readme. That that felt kind of markety, but not so much. It was like, look, there's a pain associated with setting this stuff up. This will solve your problem. You know, one click, here's the instruction, here's the usage. And and that one just kind of took off on its own. For some of my others, uh, it, you get the same type of advice that you would for running a business, right? You, the more audience you have, the more you they'll they'll pay attention when you make an announcement, that sort of thing. And I've been extremely fortunate with some of my libraries where I got some early adopters that were very enthusiastic about contributing code back, but also making noise in the social sphere and writing good documentation for me. So all those things combined and it started to just snowball and it's still snowballing for stimulus reflex and some of those types of libraries that I've got. That's so interesting. So what does it feel like when you publish a library and people start opening issues on it? Is it like a weird mix of joy and a little bit of panic or are you just excited overall? For me, it's a little bit of panic. I, I definitely have some apprehension about like being the maintainer of a popular open source, you know, m- more than one popular open source library. The The funny thing about the that, I mean, I think you can decide how much your time you want to dedicate to it and how much you want to manage that, right? So if it's pretty clear at the beginning, like that's, that's the graphite project that I've got, it's pretty clear as like, look, there's a lot of derivative works in the readme. It'll say this there's derivative works and there's an official repo that does this. That's not my Docker image. It's a Docker image thing. And so like, why don't you go look over there? And then they can also see like how unresponsive I am on the issues and things like that. Stimulus reflex is a completely different story where I'm very engaged with the community. I want to make sure that that project continues and evolves. And, and I so I'm thrilled about the contributions that are coming in, but it, it, there is an element of stress that comes with it where you're like, oh man, like I'm almost operating a business kind of around this for free, right? And, but I, I think the key there is just getting a good community behind the project. Do you have help? I do. I've got, I've got quite a few contributors and a lot of folks that are pretty enthusiastic and I'm still trying to figure out like there, there are pull requests that will be stood up because somebody maybe doesn't quite understand all the internals of the library or what it's capable of. And, and they're going through that discovery phase of, oh, I want to do this, but I didn't quite understand how to accomplish it using the tools that are there. So that's like finding the right balance there to, to not discourage those contributions and, and not discourage those folks from using the library. Let them run through the exploration and then find the right balance. So like, how long do I let this simmer? How do I guide them? Especially during times when I don't have the time to, to you know, give them a lot of attention. But again, like a lot of Slack gets picked up by your community. If you've got enthusiastic users of your library, they will, they will step up and chime in and, and help whoever's, you know, looking at, the, looking at the repo or trying to use it. Very cool. How about you, Andrew and Ron? I was actually going to ask Nate, do you have any advice on how to build that initial community? Because it seems like once once you kind of have a few people that are, you know, very enthusiastic, like you said, it gets easier. But do you have any advice for getting those initial enthusiasts? The biggest piece of advice from from that that I could share for me, how it started. I don't have you seen the the video from Derek Sivers about how to start a movement? 
where it's it's like this this group of people out at a concert or something kind of on the in the lawn seating area and there's one guy that's off in the corner just dancing like a nut just by himself and he he's going crazy nobody's really paying attention but but one person comes over and joins and joins him and starts dancing and that one person is the one that starts to pull other people in that says hey come come over here this is the cool thing and then eventually it it get, hits a tipping point where if you're not out there dancing like a nut with this crowd of people, then you're the oddball out, right? And so it takes a little while, but those that first one or two followers that come and join you are are really important. So if someone shows interest in your project early on, it's very important to to give them the attention that they deserve and, and the encouragement that they need to to continue. That's interesting. And yeah, I I kind of always have seen you as a crazy person dancing off in the corner. So in in the movement, in that analogy that he gives in that talk, and we'll, we'll link it in the show notes, but it, it's a really fascinating study in how a movement is really started because more people will follow the initial followers than they do the person that started it. I think that's a whole nother personality type as well. So I think trying to be more of that type of person can be a big stretch for some people, but some people naturally fall into that role. And so surrounding yourself with both types of people is just, it's really great in terms of building that community. Because you need the the latecomers too, because the latecomers make you stay. The latecomers will be there with your open source repository when the people who are really excited about the hot, shiny thing have moved away. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And that's really your community, right? The, The movement is just beginning in those early stages, but the community is what forms around that initial kind of nucleus of of contributors or folks that are participating, right? Mm -hmm. I was just going to point out the need for diversity, right? We were talking about, you know, how we kind of need all the different types of people, you know, in, you know, an open source community and really in, in business and most groups, you know, yeah, having diversity is key to growth. Absolutely. Yeah. The one thing I guess I would say, so they've given you like, you know, the really deep, good, thoughtful answers. My answers are, I'm going to give you like the more shallower, like checklist answers. I think setting up an example Rails app is definitely going to majorly increase like your rate of adoption. Just because like, if I can't figure out how to do it, then like I'm done right there. But if I can like, I know I can read a Rails app. So if I have a Rails app, I can just read, then I'm usually pretty good. So I think that you're definitely on the right track with that. The second thing is I think your readme is important in the way it looks. Not like your readme can be packed with stuff, but if it's too packed or if it's just like, it's just like a blob of text, like no one's going to, I mean, that's just like, it's daunting. So I think having like a nice, well-formatted readme, there's a, there's a repo that I point to a lot called like awesome readme's or something. And I, I have like gone and refactored several readme's from that. We'll link it in the show notes. The other thing is if you like, I think you should also consider like how big you want it to get. Cause when GitHub actions first came out, I was like, I was determined to be the GitHub action Ruby guy. Like I wanted to be the Ruby guy with all the, the Ruby GitHub actions. And I created several. One of them got very popular and I don't use it. 
So I knew it would be popular, but, you know, I don't use it. So, you know, slowly but surely, like my patience slash like willingness to like dive into it has definitely like stripped and it feels like a burden now. So I would definitely give that some thought, but I I think our logo can go a long way. Blog posts, even if they're short little videos, get other people to do them, ask other people to do them. I know there's plenty of people who in the community, if you're like, hey, create this cool tool, would you mind like trying it out? Or, and if you like it, could you blog about it? Or I don't know. I don't want to speak for anyone else, but you can definitely ask me that. And I will definitely do that. I like doing little tutorials, like step-by-step like that. The other thing is like the docs have to be good, but documentation is hard. So I like to hide the fact that I'm not great at documenting by making it really look good. So there's a project that I can't remember the name of, but it's from Evil Martians that helps you generate documentation to post on the GitHub pages for the project. There's Read the Docs, which is really good. Nate, what's the one we use for Seamless Reflex? Gitbook is another one. And the, and, yeah. and most of those will will offer, well, they'll give a free, like give you the free access for an open source project. I, I would say documentation is really key. If you want adoption, you need documentation. So your readme is a little bit marketing, a little bit documentation. And then I would host your documentation on one of those other services. And another piece of it is like video tutorials, like the content around it that's propping, you know, showing up on Dev2 or or wherever. Even YouTube, people walking through and doing tutorials. So for example, in some of our libraries, we've been fortunate enough to have several of the, the Rails uh, tutorial teachers drop in and, and you know, show how to use the libraries and things like that. And I've even produced some of those myself on, the, on some of the libraries. And every time one of those ships, there's like a whole new wave of interest. That's awesome. You guys have given me so much homework to do. So thanks for giving me all that. I'm going to have a busy weekend ahead, but I would love to ask some specific questions. So when do you outgrow your readme and are all the tools that you offered better than using GitHub Wiki? No. (laughs) Simple answer. I think whatever tool you think you can get up fast and running with, I like to fiddle with tools. So I, I will tend to spend way longer fiddling with like a really, really nice tool to like make it come out really, really good and less time on the actual documentation. But that's my personality. So I don't think, I think you could definitely use GitHub Wiki and be perfectly fine. But the one thing you don't get with that as much is SEO. If you're trying to grow the project, then having that online presence, your own website, your own domain, or however you decide to do it, well, that you definitely you will not get those with doing the the wiki. And I think my overall goal for the project is this is not going to be some fancy, amazingly used thing. I want it to be useful. I want it to be the de facto solution. Should you want to in- implement Google Pay for passes into your into your Rails application, just like Passbook has become for Apple. And you know, if I were to get some sort of letter from Google being like, "What is this?" I would consider that a, a cool goal. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, definitely modest goals to start off with, but I just want, I would be heartbroken to put it out there and then find out that someone had to re-implement all the code, not knowing that my project existed. Yeah. Using your mediums as well, like Twitter, your podcast, your blog about it on your personal site, 
Dev.2. I think we have funneled a lot of interest to Stimulus Reflex specifically through Dev.2. I will say I was stoked that I was able to get Google Pay as the gem name. I think gem names, a lot of times, I think your library names can be everything. There are so many times where I've passed up great libraries having no idea what they were for. Yeah, that's a good point that we probably should highlight because whenever I'm trying to think of a new gem name, I'm trying to get clever because all the really cool gems have like clever names and I want a clever name. But at the end of the day, you know, Google pay gem is probably like, if you, if you don't, if you want people to find it, unless you just start, you can use the gem spec to add in a lot of metadata for Ruby gems. And that will make it definitely more searchable on rubygems.com. But yeah, if having your like library name, like banana snow cream, and then, you know, it's like a wrapper around like the government API, just like it, it's fun, but it makes no sense, you know? I love this example, and I'm definitely going to jump and sell banana snow cream. Oh, <laughs> uh, there's my analogies again. <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Yeah, thank you all for this advice. I'm excited to ship it. I've been really funny about, so I have the first version on Ruby Gems because it's, you don't want to do domain squatting, of course, but I wanted to make sure that I got the gem name. So I pushed up like a version that I'm not thrilled about. And of course it's below 1.0, but I haven't made the repository itself public. And I don't know why I see that as like such a thing that you switch it from private to public. It doesn't matter. But yeah, it's something that I should be doing this week for sure. It's just good to be writing some code just because a lot of the code I write at the trust is not open. And so it's good to, you know, get some more open source code out there. I used to be a bootcamp instructor. And so the majority of my open source contributions was just opening pull requests against my students' repositories. So it's, it's, uh, it's been a while since I've spun up something that's entirely my own that I get to start from the bottom because... All the applications that I manage of the trust of all long-term legacy projects. Now, in terms of the example Rails project that I want to ship with the gem, which it sounds like we have consensus that that's a good idea. Should I, so we agree that it should be part of the gem itself, or do you think that should be a separate repository? I think it's totally up to you. Whatever is easiest. You may find it easier to not have it in the gem just for referencing it. I think it might be easier to be separate, but I need to find some examples of Ruby gems that do ship with another, like with an example project that they point to. I'm sure they're out there. So if you guys happen to think of any, please send them my way. Listeners to you as well. Yeah, I think I have some. With Stimulus Reflex, we actually ship another project called Expo, which is nothing but a a series of demos of how to use the library. Oh, nice. How do you ship that? It, I, we deploy it to Heroku. So you can go look at the source code, but uh, immediately we point you from the Stimulus Reflex uh, readme over to go look at the demos. And those are intended to show some of the use cases. It certainly isn't exhaustive. I mean, it, it eats a lot of time just to, just to try to bring the library up to speed and, and, and add new, you know, show the usage of new features in the library. But we, we host that on Heroku so you can play with it immediately and see what the library does. And then, and then from there, link right back into the GitHub repo and, and look at the code that you're, that you're executing right in front of you. So it, it's proven really helpful and it's helped uh, eliminate, I think, a lot of support type requests that might come in on, in, in the terms of, in, in the form of GitHub issues or tickets 
Yeah. Speaking of, do you get a lot of issues and pull requests that you end up rejecting or for the most part, are they welcome and things that you actually want to do or contributions that you want in the project? I would say all contributions are welcome, certainly, because even if even if we reject it at the at the end of the day, it makes it expands our thinking about the library or at least will show us how we've failed to document something properly or make something clear with the, you know, the public API or something like that. And so every contribution is, is very welcome. And I'd say we're, we're probably, we probably accept about 60 to 65% of the pull requests that get stood up against this. That's amazing. That's a really good statistic. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're not inundated. I mean, we're popular. I think we've got about 950 stars right now and 20, I think there's like 24, 24, 25 contributors to that particular project. So it's pretty fun. It's it's fun to see community contribution like that. And I, I was going to tell you, don't be afraid to to ship the code that you're not very proud of, even on an open source project, right? Because you'll never know who needs it. That's going to be your first enthusiast that comes in, and then they're going to see things that you're completely that's in your blind spot, right? That you you, you didn't even consider. And that's that's proven really helpful. That's good to know. You're right. Anybody watch Bon Appetit? No. <laughs> one of my favorite ways to veg out is watching cooking videos. And one of the hosts recreates gourmet, uh, candy in a gourmet way. But one of her catchphrases is, uh, I have her sticker above my, my desk that says, I am open to zero criticism right now. <laughs> I don't want to be that way with my open source contributions. So I realize that you might need to have a little bit of a thicker skin, but I, I welcome it because I know it will make me a better developer. Yeah, I'd say thicker skin and a little more patience and, and empathy. It's it's a good exercise and just kind of reminding you that you know, the, the community is large. And, and I've been fortunate enough to not have too many people come in and just demand you know my time out of the project. Everybody's pretty understanding. That's good. So I'm going to try to... I have two quick things and I have a question for you. So number one is if you're worried about like hard to debug tickets... One thing that I did because I had this problem is I created a a reproduction template. So right now I have a Rails app and then you can go to the repo and hit use this template. And it's already set up with the library installed and like instructions on how to like, you know, basically it should be quickly and easily able to, you know, reproduce your issue. And I put that in the issue when you choose your issue template. I'm like, if you have a reproduction issue, you will get, and if you don't, I can't promise you that I'll be able to like spend my time debugging it. But if you give me a reproduction, I guarantee you, you will definitely get a way faster response. So I recommend that. Number two is if you want a community, I would suggest creating a place for them. So we tried a few things, but Discord really worked out for us. I've tried Gitter in the past. I'm not really a fan. I said the same thing to Jared White, who is the maintainer of Bridgetown RB, and he he did that as well. And it's kind of fun to watch his Discord start growing as more people discover the project. And then my last question, sorry, is why did you decide to develop it in private or have it be a private repo from the start rather than working on it just putting like, you know, work in progress as the status or like as the gem description. And, you know, just, you know, if you try it, then that's, that's on you. <laughs> that's such a good question. 
Oh, it's probably because of that marketing background where, you know, I want to put out a polished thing. I need to be a little more fast and loose about that kind of thing. I'm always so terrified that I'm going to put something out that people are immediately going to like criticize before I've had a chance to polish it. But you're totally right. It is a mentality that I need to get past. And, you know, you mentioned at the top of the show, I play roller derby, which is a, which is a messy sport. And so there's a lot of strategy that goes into that. And no, you're right. Like it it started off with taking that proprietary code and then stripping it locally in order to make it something into an an open source library. But really I should have been public right from the get-go. One thing that I did struggle with a little bit at the beginning is that I wanted to use Zitework instead of the require all gem because I've heard so many good things about Zitework. I haven't implemented it at work yet. And I knew that one was going to be a little bit of a struggle because it's a totally different mentality than what I'm used to. But I successfully got that working and I really like it. I don't know if you guys have been using it, but I'm pretty impressed. Yeah, I have no complaints with Zitework. I think, you know, you you have to read the documentation, but, you know, the repo has zero issues because it really does. It kind of just works. That is an excellent example of a readme note. That's a really good point because I spent quite a bit of time reading through that readme and it is very well written and it it feels inviting. You, you want to use it after you read the readme. Yeah, I guess it's worth bringing up since you said inviting that I would, if there's like a checklist of things that I probably at some point need to write down, but it's different for every project kind of that I spin up because I spin up a lot of projects and I don't finish many of them most of them don't get finished if anything like i'll publish like this works but like not great but you know whatever i'm like i i do it for myself so i would definitely recommend making sure to include a code of conduct like out of the box like in the beginning so that there's never any question like if someone toxic comes into your community that you could be like no like right here this is where we say it because adopting it after the fact can be a little bit more messy. Issue templates are also really nice. And yeah, I think that's it. I would definitely just say code of conduct out of the box. I think on GitHub, if you go to the settings or the insights or something, they have that like checklist. Yeah, pretty much. If you do those, you'll be good. I spun up my gem with Bundler. And so it automatically got inserted in there, which was really nice. Now... uh, Oh yeah, I forgot about that. It sure does. Now to transition into like a deep thought corner, something you just said was that you spin up a lot of projects and you don't finish them. And I am so jealous of that because that kind of stuff weighs on me hard. Like I carry guilt for no reason. And so I think I just need to get past that and think like when I ship something, like it's complete, I put full effort into it and you know, it's okay to abandon if it really didn't work out. Well, don't be too jealous because the reason I'm like that is because I have rampant ADHD and my attention is only so, so full, you know, like I, and I, I don't finish a lot of things and that bothers me, but I always, I always put it out there at the very beginning just because I mean, number one, I work for an open source company. So I think about it a lot. And number two, even if the gem is not something I would use, I still can read through someone's code and be like, oh, I need that piece and that piece. And like, I may pull like tiny, tiny little things out of the code, but it's also, I also just like reading other people's code. So I think there's always like something you, even if the project is unfinished, 
I think there's always something that someone could, if they wanted to dig in and be like, oh, okay, I see what they're doing. I can use this. And now some, at least someone benefits. I agree. I've used pieces of people's code before where you, you go into it and you realize that they've only committed once into the repository, but they might have a couple implementations of things that you might be able to grab. And that's been really useful. Yeah, for sure. And I guess to a, a lesser degree, gists are, are kind of an example of that as well. Yes. Yes, gists are great. And I also pronounce them as gists. So I'm on your side, Nate. I know there's quite quite a debate around that and GIF and GIF, but <laughs> yeah, gists yeah, can be great. One thing I like about gists is that sometimes there's very animated discussions that go along with gists, which I kind of enjoy reading sometimes where people fight about one line of code, but <laughs> it's all a learning experience. So it's pretty great. You had mentioned that you you had done a lot of Ruby engines or Rails engines. And that you had some empathy around that. I'm, I'm curious to hear uh, what these battle scars are. Oh, yes. When I joined the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust, the main legacy application was a Rails 2 application that was in transition of going to Rails 4. The main CMS that the site uses, we call Trusty CMS, but it's actually a fork of a very old Rails CMS called Radiant, if anybody has heard of it. And so basically when I arrived, the Radiant CMS was, is a Rails engine that was loaded into a Rails engine. And then that was loaded into the website. And so one of the first things that I did was eliminate that middle Rails engine. And so that's made things a lot smoother. So before the trust, I had the only Rails engine experience that I had had was working with Devise, which many developers love and adore device until you really need to get into the internals and start making changes to it. For when you have a plug and play authentication story, device is top notch. But yeah, I spent so much time trying to figure out how to test against Rails engines, how to document them, how to upgrade them. So anybody, I, I think Rails engines have a really solid place in our community. They can make things very complicated, but it's great when you need to share that Rails engine across different applications. Sounds like you were um, formally releasing the, the Rails engine as an independent project and then pulling it in. Yes. Have, you done, have you done a locally path, to, like a, a local path to a locally sourced engine as well? Oh, yes, absolutely. And it is, <laughs> you could not believe how many times we were making a change to one of the Rails engines locally and kept refreshing the app. What's going on? Why is the Rails engine change not taking? And it's because it wasn't locally passed. Like we had forgotten to make that connection in that moment. So eliminating those, that overhead that we had to deal with has been a huge help to our workflow. Good question. Engines are really frustrating though. They are. They're, you basically have to read how other people are writing them, I find. Yes. And I've seen people who think that they can bundle up Rails engines and sell them as proprietary software. And I just imagine the support that would come with that. It's just, it's just not worth it. Yeah. But I did, rem- I thought about this while you were saying that there's a gem called Combustion that I've seen Palkin use a lot. And I think that has some help. It helps you with engine testing. So we'll link that in the show notes. Very cool. Combustion. Now that's a clever gem name. That is a clever gem name. But if you went on to Ruby gems and typed in engine, would it come up? It's all about that metadata. We're going to have to (laughs) check. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
just sitting there and coming up with all the various parts that are in a car and just hoping that you get a Rails engine gem could be a very entertaining afternoon. <laughs> it does say test your Rails engines without needing a full Rails app. So it, maybe it's okay. But yeah, definitely one of those names that how would you ever guess that? It's true. Yeah. Any other gem questions? No, you guys covered it for me. Thank you so much for all this help. I, you were encouraging me to document it, ship a templated Rails application with it. I'm going to look into all these other tools. I think, you know, per Andrew's advice, I'm going to implement at least 20 tools to go with it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh no, you're going to hate me. <laughs> but no, this gives me a really good path forward. And don't be surprised if I'm nudging any of you to look at my readme and just make sure that it's enticing enough. That would be great. Yeah, definitely let us know. I love, I love a good readme peruse. I did think about this while we were talking, and this is a question for Nate and Ron as well. How do y'all, when y'all write gems, all of y'all, do you use Yard like in document with like Yard docs? Like, cause you know how you can get a like rubydoc.com or whatever, and then all the methods are documented sometimes. I don't find that as common as it used to be. I was curious. I agree. I see it in a lot of older gems. It'd be something that I would be interested in using if I could prove it was actually being utilized. But I agree with you. That's not the first place that I would look for gem documentation. Yeah, I don't I don't use those when looking at trying to use other gems. So yeah, if it's something that I don't use, then I don't typically try to use it. Well, I will sense. say... Yeah, that does make sense. I will say that I've started to, because I found a tool, (laughs) it's called Yardstick. And it's basically like coverage for your yard documentation or whatever. And Pierre Tour is using it. And I was like, oh, this looks cool. More tools. Yay. (laughs) Well, if he's Uh, using it, then I'm tempted. (laughs) Right. So the interesting thing is that when I, as I've started to use or try to write more yard docs, I definitely find it helping me down downstream or catching catching bugs or just becoming more familiar with my code. But the other tool that I felt the very same way with is Sorbet, but I don't think we have time to dive into that can of mayonnaise. Oh uh, yeah, that's a whole other subject. The other one that I wanted to bring up, I don't know if anybody's ever used it, is RSpec API documentation. I've used this in past jobs. It's pretty amazing. Basically, you write your tests and then when you run your tests, it generates API documentation based on the results of those tests. And then it creates documentation then that ships with the project. So are you talking about where it outputs essentially like the swagger, the swagger type API documentation? Yeah. Yes. I enjoy that a lot because, you know, I will mention to many people that I'm primarily a backend developer with a strong appreciation for the front end. And I like that it generates like pretty nice looking documentation that you can ship with your projects that's written in theory in backend code. Is there a version of that for mini tests? I don't think so. I think it's pretty RSpec specific. Uh, is, sorry, is, Nate. <laughs> is this a mini test lover podcast? No, just We've a couple forced. of the hosts are mini Whoa. test lovers. Whoa. All right. Here's what happened, Brittany. Nate used to work with Ron. And now Nate works with me. And so Nate's teachings have been instilled on Ron and I, for better or worse. And one of those is Minitest. And I don't like Minitest. 
but I still use it. I don't know why. This, Nate, this might be the end of mini tests for me. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's, it is hard to argue with tooling. If you've ever had to go write a, a Swagger doc for your API by hand, it's, it's a terrible experience. Yeah, it is. I, I think you may have made me do that one time, actually. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Now we're turning uh, <laughs> Ruby blend beefs. <laughs> But I really like the experience of using that gem. But of course, you have to write specific tests in their way in order to generate those docs. But it can be really convenient. So I, I might actually give that a, a look-see for the gem itself. Yeah, I found the tool I was talking about earlier. It's called Doxify. Oh, okay. um, there's an Evil Martians blog post about it. So I've looked into this in the past. I don't remember all of it off the top of my head, but it's it generates really nice documentation. If you've ever looked at any cables documentation, that's what they use for that. So definitely a, another tool, another tool to put in the pocket. I'm starting to get the gist that you use as many evil Martian tools as I use from ThoughtBot. So I, I'm seeing I, a pattern. <laughs> mm-hmm. I do love me some evil Martians. Clearly. I just love tools. I love not writing code, but like playing with code. That's that's what I'm sticking with. I'm curious about roller derby. Yeah. So I got involved in roller derbies. My sister had been a referee for, oh, she must be at 12 years now. She's under the referee roller name of Blues Clueless. So the names in themselves are pretty great. I showed up to a practice and all we did the whole practice was fall on the ground to get back up. And they convinced me that I had a special talent for falling down and getting back up and that I should come back. And so I've been, I'm in my third season right now. Um, I'm actually president of my league and it's, it's a lot of fun. I will tell you the nerdiest thing about me with roller derby is that my number is 200 because when you hit me, I get back up with the status code of okay. So, oh, that's, that's awesome. awesome. <laughs> so, my original roller derby name was going to be Merge Conflict, and everyone said that no one would understand it. And so, that was no good. So, I'm named Norma Skates after Norman Bates. My helmet is full on psycho. Though I do have a couple nerdy stickers on the back, I have a JSON sticker with the A missing, of course. So, Nice. I get excited when people run up to me and they're like, I understand your helmet. I'm like, oh, my people. So uh, roller derby is a lot of fun. It's, it's a semi-complicated game to understand, but I enjoy it a lot. I miss it right now, but hopefully we'll get to come back in a couple months. Yeah, I've never I- understood roller derby. I mean, I've never actually tried to. I just like to see people hit each other. So <laughs> <laughs> it's oh. pretty great. I went on a big roller derby YouTube kick. One time, just because like the sport was just interesting, and I I learned a lot about roller derby. I think it's awesome because I used to love to skate. So next best thing to hockey, I guess, minus I'm, the whole like bludgeoning your face like on ice. Agreed. I haven't put on a, a pair of ice skates since I learned how to roller skate because I'm so afraid that I'm going to pretend like they're roller skates and I'm just going to bite it so hard. I've been doing a yeah. lot of trail skating lately, and unfortunately, I have two teammates with broken noses just because they think trail skating is going to be the same as skating on a rink. And we all know that's not true. Ouch. Yeah. Hitting your nose is no fun. No. I've almost broken mine several times. Oh, geez. <laughs> it's, 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 it's one of those types of pain that just like, you're, you're going to cry. Like 
You're going to cry straight off the bat. I wear special gloves when I'm playing roller derby that are like really intense because I mean, my fingers are my livelihood. So I cannot get my fingers run over with a pair of wheels. And there are many times where my teammates have run over my hands and they just start panicking. I'm like, oh no, it's fine. I've got these like serial killer grip gloves on. I'm all right. Typing fingers are okay. I can keep shipping code. Think about that. Oh yeah. Oh God. <laughs> what's, the mo- what, what's the most common injury in the sport? Ooh, good question. I would probably say knees. A lot of people get sideswiped and they just don't expect it. And so their, their leg will jut out a lot of broken ankles. I've unfortunately seen a lot of new skaters will break their ankles on their first night. And that's really tragic, but I've also seen a lot of skaters who never get injured. So it's all about that careful balance, I guess. What's your favorite part about roller derby? I would say that I really like the camaraderie. Just the community around it is so cool. I get to play with people that I would never normally get to interact with. I play with doctors. I play with hairdressers. I play with vets. I just play with a lot of really random people. And some of them are just so intense and crazy. And some of them are just so kind and sweet. I just love them. And then once you really understand the idea behind the game, so just to give a quick recap, you have five players on each team that you put onto the rink. Uh, One player is just trying to get around the rink as many times as possible. And the other four are trying to stop that person. And so each team has five. And so the jammer has the star on and they're trying to get around the rink as many times as possible. But one of the blockers has a stripe on. And so if the jammer's in trouble, they can take the star off their helmet and give it to the pivot with the stripe on their helmet and they become the jammer. So that's like very base, like how roller derby works. And I love it because I'm usually the pivot. And so I start off trying to stop someone and hip checking them and whatnot. And then all of a sudden I have that star and I have to take off and you have people desperately trying to knock you down. It, it, it's a real, it's a real thrill, but it only lasts two minutes at a time. And so that, that stop start, it, it's a lot of fun. I do a lot of cross training in order to up my endurance. And I get to work out with a lot of people who are like well into their forties and fifties and they're still badasses. And it's just really, it's great. That's awesome. Brittany, do you have anything else what we can do for you? Or is there anything you want to plug or any asks for the community? Yeah, that, that's a great question. First of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I respect all of you guys and I love what you're doing here. You can find me at brittanymartin.dev and that will link out to all my social media sites. I didn't catch on to the idea that you should name all your handles the same thing. And so I definitely recommend starting with the website. And of course, you can listen to me weekly on the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast, which I'm sure they'll link in the show notes. I am always looking for speakers for the podcast that have something that's either Rails, Ruby, or open source related. I want to get a lot of diverse voices out there. And one of my absolute favorite things is to bring someone on who's never been on a podcast before. So all the links to reach out to me in regards to that is also on brittanymartin.dev. And I thank you guys so much. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's been great. I wanted to mention since you also brought it up and I don't, I think we've mentioned this, but I just wanted to go ahead and echo that, that if you have never been on a podcast, please, we'd love to talk to you about anything. Even if I, my first podcast was with Jason Sweat and I literally just asked him questions about testing. So 
anyone wants to just come on, ask us questions or talk about something they're interested in or, you know, whatever, like we would love to, we would love to get more people who are lesser known in front of everyone else. So yeah, we, we share that mission with you. I guess we, we want to, want to bolster the, the voices of the unknowns. I also just have the hidden agenda for when we do get to go to in-person conferences again, I have people to eat lunch with. So if that yep. works out for me too, I mean, fabulous. That is, that is the goal at the end of the day. <laughs> well, Brittany, thank you so much for taking the time to come hang out with us. Listeners, we will catch you back next week, probably. Show notes will be in the show note area, I guess, as always. I don't know. I, I look at podcasts on my phone, so they're always right there. But you can go to our website at therubyblend.com. And if you want to give us a rating, that would be awesome. But we will catch everyone else next week. Bye. Bye-bye. See Bye. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash rubyblend.